introduce you to, reintroduce you to my favorite recovering attorney, Hank Miltenberger. Hank, come on up. I have to tell you all that, um, you know, I don't actively practice. Uh, the fact that you can just say this is my favorite lawyer and it gets a laugh, it's a little bothersome. And uh, I think of, uh, I used to hear all the jokes, you know, what do you get when you cross a lawyer with somebody from the mafia? Somebody who makes an offer you can't understand. And it, it never, never really bothered me a lot until my daughter, who's now in college, was in sixth grade and I got a hold of her. Um, American history book, and uh, and then there had a little section on uh, folklore from the revolutionary times of America, and it gave the story of Daniel Webster and the farmer who'd sold his soul to the devil, and uh, then I saw that it had another story. Apparently, at the same time that occurred, there was a lawyer, you know, at the turn of the century, not long after the Revolutionary War, who had also been approached by Satan, and Satan apparently came to this lawyer and said, "Look." If you'll, uh, I'm, I'm going to do some things for you if you do something for me, he says it. I will make you the most successful lawyer in this young country. You'll, in fact, you'll have to spend so much money, have so much money, you'll own uh, thousands of acres, you'll own ships, horses, be able to travel, have money all over, uh, all of that. And all I want uh, in exchange for it is I want your eternal soul, your wife's soul, and your only son's soul. To which the lawyer responded, well, what's the catch? <laughs> See, so that, when it gets that far, it really bothers you. Uh, living what you believe. Uh, I heard a, a story years ago about a fellow, a famous criminal in England named, Char I think his name was Charlie Watts, if I remember correctly. And he was a very much wanted man. And uh, without going into all the detail, uh, he was a, a real reprobate and uh, sentenced to the gallows on his way in. Uh, the pastor was kind of reading through very perfunctorily some scriptures to help uh, Charlie get his soul right. And apparently he stopped and looked at the man and says, um, you reading this? this is, you really believe this stuff you're reading? And the guy said, yeah, sure, I sure do. He says, because you don't sound like it, you're just reading it. And the guy says, no, no, I do. He says, I tell you what, if I believed that there was a heaven and a hell, and that, apart from Jesus Christ, I would go to hell. And hell is as you describe it. I would cross England on my hands and knees across broken glass to tell one person. He says, I don't think you really believe it. And that's what I'd ask you. Uh, we've talked a little bit this weekend about uh, heaven and hell, about judgment, about what eternity will be like apart from Jesus Christ, the ministry that God has given us, and yet we struggle uh, uh, to uh, share our faith. And I think, it's, uh, and, and we're overwhelmed, and, and we have an expression down in New Orleans with the saints who are, have not had near the success of the Denver Broncos, and uh, we say, woulda, coulda, shoulda. You know, always missed opportunities, always bad trades, Always something that has held them back. And I'd say for a lot of Christians, we feel that same way. Woulda, coulda, shoulda. And um, so why don't we share our faith more? And uh, uh, there's a, a passage in First Timothy, if you turn to it. 
First, uh, I'm sorry, Second Timothy, Second Timothy, chapter one. Verses 7 and 8. And I'll read that. Second Timothy 1, starting in verse 7. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Let's pray. Father, we know that uh, uh, you are sovereign, that you loved us so much you were willing to become a man to die for us. Uh, Lord, help us to uh, fulfill the role that you've given us. Open your word to us. Speak to our hearts so that we go away changed. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, I think Paul puts his finger on it. But you got to, the first time I read this, I thought, ashamed? I mean, it seems a little strong. Uh, that, you know, to be ashamed of the gospel of our Savior who died for us, or whom we've accepted, and we have a relationship with God through Him. But uh, I'll suggest to you that the greatest danger to the gospel in the United States is our embarrassment of it. It's just flat embarrassing to us. And we often feel... Like Charlie Brown, who uh, in a famous cartoon, it's, uh, uh, he's pitching, and it's the sixth inning. Bases are loaded, there are no outs, and Linus walks up. He's the catcher. He walks up to Charlie Brown, hands him the ball, and Charlie Brown says, we're doomed. And Linus says, no, we're not, Charlie Brown. We're just surrounded by insurmountable opportunities. <laughs> That's what we, we feel like we're surrounded by insurmountable opportunities. These, all these things that we don't do, you know, we don't take advantage of it. Well, uh, that verse 7 tells us the, really truthfully, Roosevelt was right. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. But why do we struggle with evangelism? I mean, when Jesus says, we talk about God's invitation to participate with Him in the ministry. And it's true, but... When Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, you've got to ask you, yourself, what part of go therefore don't you understand? It just, to me, doesn't sound optional. You will be my witnesses. That's not an opportunity. That's a command. It's something that uh, uh, we're supposed to do. Well, why don't we? Go through a few reasons. First of all, I'm going to suggest that we feel inadequate. For a variety of reasons. You know, I don't have the right verses memorized. Uh, reading from this little book is embarrassing. It looks silly. Uh, I don't know the Bible well enough. What if they ask me a question I can't understand? I mean, I can't answer. Uh, my life just doesn't stack up, and I'm making Jesus look bad. I just, you know, if I share it, they're going to think I'm a hypocrite. Uh, I'm not Winston Parker. I just don't have that gift. I mean, we come up with all these uh, reasons. And we sound a lot like Moses. And uh, if you want to turn to Exodus chapter 3, it's an interesting description of a conversation between Moses and God. Which is really incredible when you think about it. you got a, you know the stage that Moses has been in the desert, tending sheep for 40 years, and he comes across the burning bush. And God tells him all that he's going to do through Moses 
to, to lead the people out of Egypt, what Pharaoh's going to do, the miracles, all of that. And Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 11, and I'm just going to read the questions he asks and jump around, not the whole. He says, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? Who am I? That's, that's kind of what we say. And God's answer essentially is, I'll be with you. You're nobody. But I'll be with you. So that's so. there's no next question. And so Moses gets that. And then he uh, asks God a second question in verse 13. Who shall I say sent me? I am has sent you. God has sent you. He asks the third question in chapter 4, verse 1. What if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? And essentially God's response is, that's my job. And he has Moses throw his staff down and he shows him some of the miracles. He says, their response is my problem. I'll take care of that. Does this sound kind of familiar like our situation? In chapter 4, verse 10, Moses asks another question. I mean, I could really relate to him. He's, he wants to get out of this. Please, Lord, I've never been eloquent. For I'm slow of speech. God's answer, who made your mouth? I'll be with your mouth and teach you what you said. He says, I knew that before I asked you. Right. Jump down to verse 13 in chapter 4. But he said, please, Lord, now send the message by whomever thou wilt. Can I give the money to my pastor and let him tell him? <laughs> then it answer, it's interesting. God is not. I thought God had been ticked at question one, but he does not get mad. And then he says, then the anger of the Lord burned against Moses. He says, look, Aaron's coming. I'll be with you. Just like Jesus says. After he tells us to go there for, what does he say? And lo, I am with you, even to the end of the age. He starts with that and ends with that. You know, I know all the problems. I'm going to be with you. But do not try to get out of it. You're the one I want to send. And that's true for every one of us individually. One of the things we have to remember when we look at our inadequacy is that... Um, God has other witnesses, and evangelism is a process. And almost all of us had a variety of influences in our life that came to fruition at some point when we made the commitment to Jesus Christ. And it's a little bit that sometimes we say, well, I can't do it because I don't have all the answers. Well, when I used to practice law, when I went to trial, I usually had 5, 10, 15, 20 witnesses. And none of them ever came to me and said, well, I can't go testify. I don't know all the facts of the case. So that's okay. You don't need to know all the facts. You just need to know your little part. And when I put you on the stand, you just tell your part, and that's all you need to, to, to say. Similar to what Jesus tells us in Luke seven twenty two, And he answered and said to them, Go and report what you have seen and heard. That's all. He, just tell them what you know. In other words, i got other people that will tell what they know. I can put the whole the case together for this person. I'm calling on you right now because specifically I wanted to hear exactly what you have to give. However inadequate that may be, your little piece is what this guy needs right now, so don't worry about it. 1 Corinthians 15.3 For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. See, evangelism is not a one-time event. Just play your part. I'm going to tell you a dirty little secret. The method of evangelism and the message you give is not nearly as important as you think it is. I'm not encouraging you to be sloppy because I believe that we should sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts, always being prepared to give an answer 
for anyone to ask us for the reason for the hope that's within us. So I, within us. So I spend time memorizing verses, and I want to, the gospel is an aid to salvation, and I want to give it as clearly as I possibly can. And I encourage you to. But ready or not, when you get the chance, take it, because you know what? Uh, it all works. I have done um, street evangelism on planes, using booklets, sharing my testimony, uh, evangelism explosion, door-to-door surveys, friendship evangelism, evangelistic Bible studies, uh, people go, uh, going to stadium events, Gideon's Bibles in, uh, in uh, hotel rooms, uh, radio, even those guys on radio and TV. People come, it all works. Every stinking method of evangelism works. You can't go wrong using any of them. You just find out what you're comfortable with or uncomfortable with and just go after it. In the gospel message, we are all caught up in getting a great message. You know, everybody sins. The wages of sin is death. They can't earn your way to heaven. God so loved us, He died to pay for sins. Jesus didn't deserve to die. He died on a cross so that He could substitute His payment, which was not due, for a payment we had, which was due, so that He got justice and we got mercy, so it was a substitution. And you get, He offers it as a gift. You can't earn it. But the way you receive it is to accept that gift by faith and commit your life to Him. He's your Lord and your Savior. Just get it. Got it. You know, it's got to be all clear. You've got to understand all those principles. Guys, you read through your Bible. I tell you, it's, it's interesting because you say, if I can't get that. And I, I, by the way, I've shared the gospel. I've started in the middle and worked out in both directions when I was, you know, got caught in a situation where I just wasn't mentally there and people came to Christ. But if you read the gospel presentations written out in the New Testament, they're horrible by our standards. They are horrible. Look at Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Wait a minute. What about the resurrection, uh, substitutionary? Jesus never sinned. God loved you. You, you, you got a pro- problem. You're going to go to hell. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Uh, Paul, couldn't you do just a little better than that? You're the apostle. Abraham, God takes him out. This is God the Father. Abraham, see those stars? You had that many kids. You see this land you stand on? It's going to be yours. Abraham goes, you know, I, I believe you. Be saved. God, Jesus, Jesus, God, are you going to send Jesus? God decides the content. Jesus is the basis for salvation, but God decides the content of what the message is. John 5, 24. Here's Jesus. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. You know, I can do better than that. How about this one for attracting people? John 6, 54. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Ever use that one on the street corner? The woman at the well, I mean, it's a great example of it, but why is it Jesus? He's really, that's confusing. Whoever drinks the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing to eternal life. Or salvation is from the Jews. Oh, you must worship him in spirit and truth. I'm the Messiah. Gosh, he left so much unsaid. How on earth did she understand what he was talking about? When he comes up against Nicodemus, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, who whoever believes in him should not perish but eternal. Believes in him for what? 
What about our problem with sin and the need for forgiveness and reconciliation, the price Jesus paid on the cross and the resurrection? Where is all that stuff? And then you read in Acts, and almost all they preach is a resurrection. Nothing about the sin problem, nothing about substitutionary atonement. You know, in uh, the famous of Peter before the high priest in, in uh, Acts 4, by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, who you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands before you in good health, and there is salvation in no one else. Come on, Peter, what an opportunity. The Sanhedrin, tell him the story. You know, I could have written it out in a little book for you. He left so much unsaid. And, 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 um, and Acts 2, where, what was it, two, 3,000 people come to Christ? They're pierced to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and the, and the payment He made for you in the sin, and admit that you have nothing to bring to God, and you can come to Him bankrupt only. You don't add anything. To, no, they said, and Peter said to them, Repent, let each one be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they all got saved anyway. They got saved anyway. Paul before King Agrippa, another missed opportunity. See, substitutionary atonement and our emphasis on that is really more of a 20th century phenomenon. Now, I'm not encouraging. I think that the Bible teaches that the gospel message has power. You know, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. It can help people get there. It's the tool we have, the weapon. So say it as clearly as you can. But guys, if, you're not having, if you haven't got it straight in your mind, say whatever you know. Right then. You see... He's just, God had decided whatever you got to offer is what He wants that person to hear. So just lay it out there. I don't care where you are. Don't miss the opportunity because you're afraid you don't have the content perfectly. Uh, and if you feel, if you still feel inadequate, it's okay because you like the guy who says, I have, you know, I have an inferiority complex. God says, yeah, that's right because you are inferior. <laughs> you are inadequate. We are helpless to convince anyone. And personally, I don't like that. I like to manipulate people and control the situation. And I can't do it here. I can, I can, I used to, when I sold door to door, I can make people buy. I'm not proud of it. <laughs> and I have made people commit their lives to Jesus before too, or tried to. But it doesn't, it doesn't work. The Holy Spirit, when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. We just give the message. And by the way, Jesus said, and you heard this talk about this yesterday, you didn't choose me, I chose you. Now, I don't, know, I don't know what that means, but it's something He's doing for sure. He's got to open their eyes to see their sin. That's the Holy Spirit does that. So you're really helpless. Uh, and the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for their foolishness to him. They must be spiritually appraised. So it's something God has to do, and we don't like feeling helpless. We can't make it happen. We just throw it out there and see if the hand grenade goes off. And you were dealing with people who are lost, they're blind, they're described as harassed, helpless, slaves of Satan, dead, without hope and without God. They can only be reached by God's action. So it's okay to feel helpless. We don't have to like it. It's not comfortable for us. You can't exegete or argue somebody into the kingdom. The, probably the most powerful weapon you have is your own personal conviction. You pray, according to Colossians 4, for opportunities that you'll have the boldness and that you'll speak clearly. Colossians 4, 2 through 4. Uh, and pray for people's salvation in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4 and other passages. But God, if anything happens, just like he says in 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 9, uh, God has to cause it to happen. So, 
So you can't brag afterwards. If somebody came to Christ, you just happened to be there when it happened. Well, why do we still struggle? It's countercultural. And you know, I'll tell you something I've thought about. I'm at the age now, around 50, where, uh, and I do some work at our church with the uh, high schoolers. I just, I can't relate to these kids. They are facing things that just weren't happening in my world. They listen to music that makes no sense to me. Uh, they're interested in stuff that I'm not interested in. But I had a guy tell me this a few years ago. Jesus is cross-cultural. And He's absolutely timeless. So if you stick close with Him, you're always relevant. You don't have to act. I don't try to act like they see that's phony anyway. Just get close to Jesus and you're absolutely relevant to their lives. You don't have to pretend to anything else because he's, because he's absolutely relevant. But the culture says that uh, your faith is private, you're intolerant, you're narrow, no fun, you're hypocritical. I had a big discussion with my barber who is a lost guy about the intolerance of Christianity and explained to him about truth and we had a great conversation. But that's the way they view us. Gee, the gospel's an offense. Right? It's, it's no way to get around it. You, you, Paul, I mean, uh, Walt told us that this morning. That leads to the next reason, and that's that we're going to appear weak and stupid. And as men, we don't like to appear weak and stupid. Uh, and guys hate this. You know, but uh, in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about the fact that the gospel message looks weak to the Jews and foolish to the Gentiles. That's why the Vikings were initially so hard to evangelize. They saw Jesus was a weenie. He went there voluntarily. He should have gone down swinging. Until they understood that he had the power to stop it. But because of his love. And then they started to embrace him. But it is um, even more difficult. Because if you preach a weak, foolish message. Then you look weak and foolish. I have a buddy who came to Christ. And he was all excited. And he went and told his wife. And he says... She didn't do this, but it's like she patted me on the head. Oh, that's so good for you. You needed that. And I've had guys say that to me, and I, all I can say, you're right, I did. I did need it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, And I was with you in weakness and in fear, and in much trembling. And that's, you know, that's where we are. That no man should boast before God. So it's important to go back to who your audience is because you're going to look a little foolish and you're going to look a little weak. And if you don't care because you're worried about what God thinks, then you'll do it anyway. Fourth reason we don't share Christ is because we're smart. I mean, we can figure this thing out. You read a passage like 2 Timothy 2.3 and he says, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 1.8 Join with me in the latter part of it, suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. It's warfare. It's described as warfare. And we're not dumb. The thing is, it sounds a lot like the invitation of the Marine Corps, except for the weak and foolish stuff. And, and you go, gosh, you know, that's no fun. I mean, I grew up at the time of the Vietnam War, and I tell people, in 1970, at that particular point, nobody wanted to go to Vietnam. They were pulling out. I mean, they were, it was just all you do was a holding action to try to get out gracefully. I wanted to go to war you could get out of. Uh, earlier it was different. But there is a war going on whether you realize it or not. And I've heard people say that most Christians are an R&R. That's a lie. We're behind enemy lines. The whole world is behind enemy lines. And you are in the war. If you don't know it, you've just been captured. Or you're a casualty. And you don't know it. 
Because it's only three choices. You're either fighting it, you're captured, or you're a casualty. You're behind enemy lines. There's no R&R for you. You better realize that. It's hard to swim upstream. It is a battle. I mean, Paul says in Colossians 1, 28 and 29, and we proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to His power, which mightily works within me. That word for labor means to sweat. It's grunt work. It's hard. It's when you get tired and you want to quit. It's very difficult manual labor. And striving that he describes that he is doing for the gospel is a word that was used for wrestling and not professional wrestling, real wrestling. And if you guys have ever really wrestled, I mean, when I grew up in the South, I'd go over to a guy's house. I can remember I'd go over to the Smith house and there were five boys. And I'd wrestle the youngest brother, whoop him, then whoop the next one, then whoop the next one, until somebody whooped me. (laughs) You wrestled all the time. And boy, it was hard. It was tiring. You get tired very quickly when you wrestle another guy. And Paul said, that's what it's like. He said, that's why he told us we had to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our toil is not in vain in the Lord. That's that word toil. It's difficult. It's hard. It's swimming upstream. You're going to get tired like Walt talked about yesterday. You're weary of well-doing. And you can talk all you want about letting go and letting God, but it's just hard. And it's going to take God's according to His power, which mightily works for me. You've got to take His help. But you've got to make the commitment. You've got to get in the ring and start to match up. There are seven realities to the difficulty of the people business. One of them, we have, a lot of them we've really talked about, so I'm just going to cover them briefly. People are going to lap you in the race of life. I can't stay till 10 o'clock every night. I've got Bible study. I've got a family. I've got other commitments. I've got my church. I've got priorities. And work, I'm going to work as hard as my boss, God, tells me how to work in it. And where he draws the line, it's as hard as I work in it. If it costs me my career, it's going to cost you a lot of money. You're going to do things you wouldn't have done, pay people you wouldn't have paid, miss opportunities you would not have had to miss except for following Jesus. And you're going to take opportunities to share Christ with your clients and people that supply you and everyone else when you get the chance, even though you may lose them as clients. So it's going to, it's going to take you out of the success track in all likelihood. And cost you money to boot. And not just for conferences, but taking guys to lunch to share Christ with them, giving it to missionaries, uh, doing the right thing. There's going to be a price. What Jesus said in Luke 16, 9, And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the mammon and unrighteousness, that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. See, all of our resources are purely utilitarian. They're there to do work for the kingdom to garner for you things in heaven and to, to get people into heaven with you and get their situation better in heaven by encouraging them and rebuking them, whatever they might need at the time. But resources, in fact, are called in verse 10 of Luke 16, a little thing. And that's no big deal. It's, it's, pay, it's monopoly money. In fact, he says in verse 11 of that chapter, if therefore you've been faithful, in the, if you've not been faithful in use of righteous, of, um, use of unrighteous mammon, who will entrust true riches to you? Money is not true riches. It's baloney. It's illusory. It's like a bird that flies off. He says, take it and do something smart with it and get yourself something that you can't lose. Uh, You're going to get tired. Plan on it. Um, I love this story in Luke 5, 5. And Simon, they've been out fishing and Jesus walks up to him and Simon, before he'd been named Peter, answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. 
But Jesus just asked him to drop the nets. But at your bidding, I'll let down the nets. Worked all night. So, okay, Mr. Non-Fisherman, <laughs> we'll drop the net for you. <laughs> because you said so. But we're tired, you know, I just want you to let you know there ain't nothing out there. Of course, they caught a bunch. Luke 17, 7 through 10. An interesting description for us to remember who we are. But which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately, sit down and eat? Doesn't happen, he says. But will you not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me until I have eaten and afterward you can eat and drink? He doesn't, and he doesn't thank the slave. So we've got to remember, we're working for somebody else. We're day laborers. We're going to get dirty and tired in the field. The harvest is every day. It's really like a dairy farm. Where I grew up, there were a lot of dairy farms. And those guys, they did not get to go on vacations. You've got to milk those cows every day. Every day. And every day, the fields are wide under harvest. And um, just when you are whooped out and you want to sit back and relax, Jesus says, let's go fishing. Oh. Okay. And that's what the opportunity offers. And life with the nets is, uh, is wet and they get tangled. That's just part of it. Uh, time management for that reason is going to be more of a dream than a reality. Paul's life was a mess. I love how, I mean, he, the Corinthians picked this up and he called him a flake. And he had to say, you know, I was intending to come to you. Therefore, I, was, I wasn't vacillated when I, when I intended to come, was I? He said, but you know, Paul knew he worked for somebody else. You know, you can go ahead, schedule margin in your life. I mean, great. But your time is not your own. And uh, your servant's schedule, a servant's schedule is at the mercy of his master. And God is our master. And so we do it when he says to do it, the way he says to do it. You won't be popular. The gospel message is offensive. It's a stumbling block. They hated me, they're going to hate you, Jesus said. Um, if you want to be considered wise, just do good stuff and don't tell them why. But as soon as you bring Jesus into it, uh, you're going to have a problem. You can't be popular because they don't want Jesus. Jesus has implications that the world does not like to think about. Uh, another problem in a reality of being in the people business is you can't measure your success. And this one really kills me because we get all these financial statements and we're always thinking of neat new stuff in our business to measure how we're doing, number of calls, how long we're on the calls, finances, ratios. We're measuring everything all the time. And as a business person, and in sports, you know, you measure how many yards your favorite running, but everything's measured. And here you've got a situation where you can't measure it. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 2, You're our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. How do you measure that? Here's Paul at the end of his life saying, Man, Timothy, don't be ashamed of me. I mean, I tried. It just didn't work out. We think he's this great, successful missionary. I read the story of Paul. He runs out of one city after another. They don't come back. You know, uh, Flake, they're, they're following behind him saying, Oh, he told you that? <laughs> it looked like a zoo. And then he gets accused and arrested and everybody deserts him but one guy. What a failure. You 
you're going to live with greater accountability. Once you tell somebody about Jesus, they're going to be watching you. They're going to be watching. And boy, you know, I don't like that. You know, you can never afford to blow up with somebody because I, the way I look at it is I want to, no matter what I, interaction I have with a person, I want to be able to tell them about Jesus right afterwards. If I'm firing them or, or reprimanding them, I'm always thinking of that. And they're watching. As soon as they know where you stand, they're watching to see if they can't find any inconsistency because it gives them an excuse. Aha, I knew it was phony. And we don't want that accountability. We don't want to be responsible for that. And that's what we're called to. Those are the realities. Well, how do you pull it off? If you're going to engage men, in men's souls, you need to do to develop an eternal perspective because you're going to give so much away temporally that you just better have something. As I said, you're going to go towards gain and you better focus it on the eternal. You have to be uh, like Abraham and look for a city not made with hands. Be like Jesus for the joy set, who's for the joy set before him. Endure the cross. Fix your hope on the eternal and just obey. And I'm going to suggest to you, you need to change the way you think. Because too often, we tend, again, to think of evangelism as an event. It's something you do. That's a huge mistake. Because then you got to go do it. See, I have to, and I, we have, everything grows up. I mean, here I'm amazed. If you don't put water on it, nothing happens. Back home, there's so much water. It, it grow, we can't, i got to weed my driveway, my concrete driveway. I mean, it grows everywhere. And I, I, I weed. I have to do it. I hate it. But, you know, I don't think of myself as a gardener. But Jesus said, follow me and I will make you into fishers of men. I won't make you fish. I'll make you a fisher of men. Now, down our way, we got a lot of people that love to fish. I mean, and these guys, what, what's, I, I go fishing, but these guys are fishermen. They talk about fishermen. They got fish on the walls. They have equipment. They spend their free time on it. They think about it. They tell you about it, whether you want to hear it or not. You know, when you go to the house, you eat fish. It's who they are. It's the way they think of themselves. It's what they, they can't wait to go do it because it's, their, it's part of who they are. And um, it's, it's not something you do. And who you are is determined, of course, biblically by whose you are. And um, so uh, you are going to be what God wants to make you to be. He says uh, to them, uh, you will be my witnesses. You will be my witness. You don't have to go out and witness. You'll just be it. You'll just look. If you come back home during LSU football season, on if you talk to me in the week after LSU won, you're gonna hear about LSU, about the game. Not because I can't help it. It just part. You know, it's part of my. I just I'm effusive about it. Hey, you know, can you believe this? And you can't stop me ever. Give me the opportunity. If I get to pick the topic, you're gonna talk about LSU because I'm an LSU fan. See, and because we are a follower of Jesus, we're a Jesus fan. And we can't help ourselves. It's who we are. You want people to know. You don't want them to not know. You desperately want them to know. You can do the work of an evangelist. You can be an evangelist. Regardless of what you might think you're gifting it. And um, you got the flip side of this, guys, is if you haven't been fishing, you probably haven't been following. Because he didn't say, follow me and you might be. You will be. So if you're not fishing, you know, I'm going to tell you, you better sit back and take a good hard look at your life because I don't think you're following. Jesus says in John 15, 2, every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. I don't know what that means, but I don't want to find out. 
I can't believe anybody would want to. But we feel so often like the old, the young polar bear. You know, the polar bear, the young polar bear asked his parents, his dad, mom, am I a polar bear? They said, what, are you nuts? Look at you. You're white, you got the nose, heavy, you know, we're in Alaska. I'm a 100% polar bear, your mother's 100% polar bear. Look at your grandparents, polar bear, 100% polar bear. Your mother's grandparents, all your brothers and sisters, your aunts, everything, all polar bears in the whole family. How could you even ask that? She says, because dad, I'm cold out here. <laughs> I'm not fishing. You know, um, be a fisherman. Get your mind right. Get into the book. You hang with Jesus, I promise you. Look, four years I couldn't spell triathlon. Now I I get, I was telling you, I get Inside Triathlon, Triathlete Magazine, I get Runner's World, Bicycle Magazine every weekend. I'm out on my bike, I'm running with it, I'm swimming. I, I, I... I hung around with a bunch of guys that loved it and I caught the disease. You hang around with Jesus and you catch the disease. You need to think of yourself as an ambassador. That's a mindset. If you're the ambassador to Mexico, you're not just the ambassador 8 to 5, right? If they catch you, you know, peeing on a wall somewhere, look at the United States dead! You're always the, you are always reflective of the United States. Everything you say is it is held against the United States. Everything you do, that's what we are. We're ambassadors. You're always your servants. The only legitimate question we can ask as God's servant is, "What do you want me to do today, Lord?" You're brought with a price. What are you doing? We don't even ask him. We're evangelists or witnesses. Think of yourself that way. That's why I say it's important. What's the first thing that comes to mind when you think of yourself? better be a follower of Jesus. It's your identity. Like being an alien or stranger. You know, you're just passing through. You don't need to be that comfortable. Get comfortable when you get home. And that's a transformed view that takes a biblical mindset. It's something that you have to, if you abide with Christ, His hope just will become your hope. I mean, it's just going to happen. As He takes over your life and your interest, you just—you don't have to work it. That's why He said, "You just follow Me; it'll happen." Because He's fascinating. You get enamored of Him. You can't believe uh, how interesting He is, how unpredictable, how fantastic, how perfect. And so, um, we want uh, to be like Jesus. So, you want to be like Mike? You want to be like Jesus? You just hang with Him to do it. Abide with Him, spend time with Him. That's the core. You want to become who He is as much as you can to be like Christ. And you'll receive your own reward according to your own labor. By the way, it's another motivational tool. Each one's going to be recompensed according to the deeds in the body. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we proclaim Christ. You know, His value system becomes your value system. He says He'll make it worth our while. And people are what Jesus cares about. I, said, I, I use the example. Uh, for years, my wife was like every other wife. She had to drive a minivan. And then finally, my daughter got old enough. And her mother was at an age where it was hard for her to get in and out. She lives with us. And so I got her a little sedan. And um, four-door. And she just loves it. 
she could see out the back to park. She's not always, you know, she uses the Braille method to park. So she doesn't hit as many things. And, uh, and she just loves it. The air conditioning works well. It's comfortable. It drives really smoothly. She just loves that car. She parks it right up by the back door. And, and, um, and what if, uh, you know, I come into the house one day and I go into the little closet where I back, grab a shovel, and I walk out to her and I just start wailing away on her car. Whoa, what are you doing? Well, the stinking thing was in my way. It's in my way every day. It just really gets on my nerves. It's always right there. I'm going to teach it a lesson. She says, but I love that car. Don't you love me? Yeah, I love you. But this, the car is in the way. No, I'm not going to do that. Because she says, if you love me, you're not going to destroy something that I love. That's what Jesus is saying. If you love me, you're, not, you're going to love people. Because that's what I love. And if it's important to me and I'm important to you, whatever's important to me is going to be important to you. She has a favorite vase. You're going to be really careful around that vase. Whatever it is, because you love her. And that's what Jesus, if you, because you love Jesus, what he values is going to become what we value. And in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15, says, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. It controls us. Because Jesus loved people and died for them, we die for them. He did it, we did it. We do it. I love in uh, Matthew, I mean, sorry, Luke 15, uh, the stories, little parables he gives. He's, he's interacting with uh, these folks, and he tells this parable about this guy has a hundred sheep and one wanders off. And there's a lot, I've heard a lot of different angles. The one that strikes me about that and, and is the fact that, not just the fact that he leaves 99 sheep, we're going to go all over the place, probably, while he goes to find this one. But the fact that he goes and goes until he finds it. And then when he finds the stinking sheep, he throws a big party and probably has all, he has all his friends over. He's got to slaughter three or four sheep to feed them. In other words, he, spends, he celebrates way past what the value of the sheep has. If he told me that parable, I'd go, what are you, nuts? It makes no sense. It's absurd. It makes no sense at all. And then he tells the second one about a coin. lady has ten coins and loses it. says he tears the house apart. Until she finds it. And then she invites all of her friends over for a party and spends the other nine. I mean, you go, what the heck are they... What are you trying to tell us here? This makes no sense at all. I mean, it's, it's silly. Think about it. I think what he's telling us is that people are worth more than you could guess from being around them. The sheep is worth more than it looks to be worth for. For a sheep, it's not worth that. Not worth a big party and, and risking all that for it. Coin's not worth it. And God's saying it is to me. You can't see it. I don't expect you to, but that's how much I value it. The story of the prodigal son tells us does the same principle. This, I tell the kid to hit the road and don't ever come back. But he is God is desperate for a relationship with his lost kids, and he places a value on them far beyond what we could imagine. I tell you, people aren't worth it. They aren't worth it around where I live. I wouldn't die for them. They ain't worth a toot. <laughs> but God says, oh yeah, they are. Oh yeah, they are. And if you hang with them, you'll give them that value too. You get rubs off on you. He's desperate. It's like when a parent loses a child in the mall. And they're frantic. And we lost our daughter one time, couldn't find her around the house, and we were freaking out. And um, I mean, we just went nuts. And you don't walk up to that parent and say, well, just make another one. 
or get another. There's plenty of kids around here. Get one of the other ones. You don't do that. He wants a relationship with that person that you're in front of right now. So they have incredible value. You can't afford to destroy that, which means that much to him. The Lord's portion is is his people. And Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. He wants a relationship. And so value what God values. And he values people. Nothing else matters. So let him come in and trash the carpet, the table, your favorite chair. Whatever they're going to lend them something and let them ruin your boat. They don't matter. They matter. Because Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. He gives two commands. Here's the big ones. Love God and love men. They're not multiple choice. You don't love men, you don't love me. Just like that car for Cheryl. You can't play the game. It won't work. If you love him and you want to please him... The lover of your soul, you're going to love what he loves and value what he values, or you're lying to yourself. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. And to accomplish his work. Do you not say, there are four months and then comes harvest? Behold, lift up your eyes and look to the fields, for they are white under the harvest. I sent you to reap. Fields are white. My food is to do God's will. Oh, to get there. Oh, to get there, because I'm not sure watching all of you guys and myself at the dinner table if that's true. But if you hang with them, it'll happen. The, your priorities will change. And um, just tell your friends and your neighbors and your family if you get the chance. That's all he's asking you to do. He's, he really offers an unbelievable deal to us. It's a fantastic deal. He says, look, uh, it's like we, we, don't hire, we don't do this with our salespeople, but it's like God does this. He says, I'll make the appointments for you. That's the hard part. If you've ever been in sales, that's the hard part, making the appointments. He says, I'll make the appointments. You don't have to do that. All you do is make the sales presentation. I don't, and I really, it's, you know, work on it, but whatever you got, be fine. Results aren't important. I'll take care of that. I'll take care of all your needs, by the way. If you do, if you do this, I'll take care of all your needs. And I'll reward you just for making the presentation. You'll get a reward. And by the way, what you're selling, you give it away, it doesn't cost anything. So they don't have to pay anything for it. What a deal. I tell you, you come to our place and try to play by those rules, we fire you. <laughs> you better get results. It's the perfect job. It's the perfect job. The only mistake you can make is not taking the opportunities, not to open your mouth. Guys, how should they believe in whom they have not heard, and how shall they hear without a preacher? Ain't no way around it. Walt said it yesterday. You got to open your stinking mouth and say something. Bad witness, good witness, obedient life, disobedient life. Tell them. And tell them, you know, if I have a relationship with Jesus, it's not on the basis of me looking so good as His mercy. I need Him worse than you do. It's okay. Make Him look more forgiving. And Satan's plan, what's his big weapon? It's, it, I tell you, it's been working for 2,000 years. It works great today. All he says is, now's not a good time. Ships too, you know, if you're going to get interrupted, they're really not, it's not right. Next time you're with this person, they don't want to hear it. All he has to say is not now. It's just not a good time. Don't not do it. Just not now. And that's what you just not now all the way to your grave. And uh, you need to worry. Because there is a risk. Because if you're not doing it, and you're not fishing, and 
You know, you need to worry if you're not following. But something's wrong because it's obviously abnormal. I love um, Dawson Trotman's little old book, The Need of the Hour, because he says if you're not reproducing yourself, it's like if you're a human being. If a human being grows up to adulthood and does not reproduce himself, something's wrong usually if they're married. You know, you're either sick, you've got some kind of a problem, you're stunted, you're not, you have not fully matured. Uh, something is abnormal. And you need to look at your life and try to figure out what it is and deal with it. Because it's not normal. Or maybe, you know, you're not following. Maybe you're not His. So, I look at a passage like Ezekiel, and I'm going to finish here. 3.18, When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you don't warn him or speak out to warn the wicked from his wicked way, that he may live, that the wicked man shall Die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Of course, he says you can share it. That's Ezekiel 3.18. You could share it. He says they may not respond, but then you're off the hook. <laughs> so, so why would you want to risk the consequences of disobeying? And it's such an unbelievable deal. There's a great book, if you want to read it, about. it's called Taking Men Alive. It's written by a guy named Trumbull, and it's just fantastic principle. He just says, if somebody gives you the opportunity to raise a, a topic, make it Jesus. If that's who you are, that ought to what you know. Just try to ask them where they go to church or where how they grow up. You can just—it's easy to do, guys. And I'm not going to get into how because it all works, and we could do that in other in another form. Uh, and another neat thing is, however you do it, no one can judge you for it because it's like loving your wife or honoring your parents. It's a positive command. The way I do it's going to be different from the way you do it. So there's no way for me to tell you whether you're doing it right. So you don't have to worry about answering to anybody but God. You just got to be faithful to the way you think He wants you to do it. And opportunities you get. Maybe you aren't the guy who shares with everything that moves and breathes. That's okay. Share with the people God wants you to do. The opportunities He gives you with your talent, with your message, in your way. When He gives you the chance, He wants them to hear what you have to say the way you can say it. Let's close. Father, I pray that we would operate with integrity with the gospel, knowing that, uh, Father, there is a heaven and a hell, and the difference in that geography has to do with how people respond to Jesus. Help us to be fishermen. Help us to, to abide in Christ and to follow and just be faithful to the opportunities you give us, Lord, to be servants to you and not ourselves. In Christ's name, amen.